Here's something you might not know about me. For the last 20 years or so, I've been touring with rock bands. Not as a musician, but working behind the scenes. And you wouldn't believe the things I've seen. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll are just the beginning. So today I want to tell you about three legends who lost their lives way too early. At first glance, their deaths appear to be tragic casualties of a rock and roll lifestyle, but we're going to take a little closer look at the mysterious circumstances surrounding them, and I have a feeling you're going to hear some things you didn't know before. I definitely did. So let's get into this. Good to see you. I'm Chris, and this is True Crime Recaps. Question for you. Are you old enough to remember River Phoenix? Did you know he was first and foremost a musician? I actually saw his band, Alaka's Attic, play at the very first Lollapalooza. And if you can't say the same, then I can almost guarantee you've probably seen at least one of the movies he made before his death at age 23. Stand By Me and My Own Private Idaho are two of my favorites. He was on track to be one of the biggest stars of his generation before it all fell apart on October 31st, 1993. And let me tell you, what happened that night is not quite as cut and dried as you might have heard. Here's the whole story. Just a few months before this all went down, Johnny Depp and a partner opened up the Viper Room on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, California, and they wanted it to be a place where celebrities could go and get loose without any cameras around. And well, you know what that means. Drugs. But on that Halloween weekend, River wasn't planning on partying. He was in the last three weeks of shooting a movie called Dark Blood, and he'd been on the set all day. The guy was tired. The only substance he was on that day was cold medicine because he felt like he was coming down with something. But his 19-year-old brother, Joaquin, and his 20-year-old sister, Summer, were in L.A. visiting, and they wanted to go out. To be specific, they wanted to go to the Viper Room, but they were underage and they couldn't get in unless they had an over-21 celebrity with them. Which isn't exactly how the L.A. County liquor laws were written, but, you know, it, it's celebrities. They write their own rules sometimes. So his girlfriend at the time, Samantha Mathis, offered to take them so River could stay home and rest. But at the last minute, just as they were leaving, he rallied and went with them. He didn't want to miss a chance to get up on stage and jam with his friend Flea. You know, the bassist from Red Hot Chili Peppers? He had a side gig with Johnny Depp's band, P. And they just played for fun, but they had some amazing musicians on the stage that night. Al Jorgensen of Ministry, Ben Tench from Tom Petty's band, and Gibby Haynes from the Butthole Surfers. And like I said, River's band, Alaka's Attic, was starting to get some real traction in the industry. So he was excited for a chance to perform, and he brought his guitar with him. The group walked into the Viper Room around 12.30 a.m. on October 31st, 1993. And here's where the story gets a little murky. You might even say the circumstances are mysterious. According to journalist Gavin Edward, in his book, Last Night at the Viper Room, when Flea noticed River in the club with his guitar, he broke some disappointing news to him. He wouldn't be able to get up and play with him since the small stage was going to be too crowded. But River was okay with that. He was with his brother and his sister and girlfriend, and he was fine singing at their table. He was even talking about standing up on a chair to perform. Now, that's a key point because... Other accounts of what happened that night say he was so disappointed about losing his chance to be on stage that he turned to drugs. But that's not necessarily accurate. River was one of the first up-and-coming celebrities to champion his pet causes loudly 
and publicly. He was a strict vegan and a huge supporter of PETA. He was born River Jude Bottom, and he was raised almost completely isolated from mainstream society. His family were hippies in the truest sense of the word. They moved around the country doing odd jobs where they could, and River was actually born on a peppermint farm in Oregon. But it wasn't long before they made their way to South America as missionaries for the Children of God cult. You've heard of that cult, right? It's the creepy one that encouraged its members to use sex to bring people closer to God, especially sex with children. And the way River told it, he first had relations when he was only four years old. Good Lord, save us from these perverted cult leaders. Anyway, I say this so you know the guy had a non-traditional childhood, to say the least. And he and his brothers and sisters were supporting the family by dancing and singing on street corners from the time they were small. As the oldest, River was his family's de facto leader and breadwinner, which is a lot of pressure to put on a guy. But he didn't turn to drugs the way you might have heard. Yes, he was a fan of cocaine and cannabis, but he wasn't necessarily a regular user. The problem was that when he did turn it up, he turned it up to 11 and went on binges. Then he would be clean for a long time. When he died, he'd been on a clean streak for months while he was shooting dark blood. All right, so back to the last night in the Viper Room. In his book, Gavin Edwards writes this. At about 12.45, a guitarist friend of Rivers came over to his table holding a blue cup. He handed it to him and said, Hey, Riv, drink this. It'll make you feel fabulous. River didn't know what was in it, but since he had taken this friend to rehab twice, he could guess that it wasn't ginger ale. But being the sort of person who would jump off cliffs to travel through clouds, River downed it in one gulp. Now, that guitarist friend was allegedly John Frusciante. If you don't know that name, he's a legendary guitarist who played with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The drink he handed to River had a lethal dose of heroin and cocaine in it. It didn't take long before he was feeling sick, and people heard him saying, it's too much, it's too much. Someone gave him a Valium to bring him down, but it didn't work. He vomited at the table and passed out. He came to a few minutes later. Now, according to The Last Night at the Viper Room, he said he wanted fresh air, and his brother, sister, and a security guard helped him out of the club. It was 1 a.m. when he collapsed on the sidewalk convulsing. Joaquin called 911. His sister held River down, trying to stop him from hurting himself since he was having seizures. Now, by 1.15, paramedics were on the scene trying to restart his heart, but less than 45 minutes later, he was dead. His autopsy report revealed no needle marks anywhere on his body, no alcohol in his system, and no evidence of habitual drug use. But he did have eight times a lethal dose of coke and heroin. But how he came to ingest it is the question. Did somebody really hand him a blue cup full of basically poison? Or did he get carried away and do it himself? Now, that's a question we may never know the answer to, because someone in the club purposefully destroyed the security tapes when they learned the police and ambulance were on their way, according to an interview with Hollywood PI Paul Baresi. Now, the same article gives a different story about what happened. This version is based on Bob Forrest's book, Running with Monsters. He says River was doing coke in a back office with a group of friends. He also says River told him he thought he was ODing later that night, but he blew it off since he was functioning well enough to walk and talk, at least for a little while. But 
he wasn't alone. What do Joaquin, Summer, and Samantha Mathis have to say about it? Well, Joaquin and Summer haven't talked publicly about how exactly River OD'd, and Samantha was so traumatized by the whole thing that it took 25 years for her to tell her side. And when she did open up, she had a slightly different version too. In her words, she came out of the bathroom just in time to see her boyfriend and another guy being shoved out the door. When she followed them out, she saw River collapse and go into seizures. At that point, she says she yelled at the guy and he told her to leave River alone because she was spoiling his high. Now, who that guy was or if the incident even happened is unclear, but we do know that no charges were ever pressed and at the time no one was talking. But there were plenty of rumors that something more sinister had happened that night. As director Peter Bogdanovich told the Huffington Post in 2012, it's impossible to calculate the level of envy in Hollywood. I think envy killed him. Weirdly, at the moment that his life was slipping away on that sidewalk out front, inside the club, Johnny Depp's band was playing a song that name-checked River and his friend Michael Stipe. Listen to a few of the lyrics. I finally talked to Michael Stipe, but I didn't get to see his car. Him and River Phoenix were leaving on the road tomorrow. What a sick, sad story that should have never happened. He was cremated wearing an Alakazadic band t-shirt. His ashes were spread on his parents' property in Florida. And here's a fun fact for you. His next project was supposed to be Interview with a Vampire. He'd been cast as Daniel Malloy, the biographer that writes the vampire's story. The vampire in this case is Brad Pitt, just in case you're not familiar with the movie. But after River died, Christian Slater took over his part, and he donated his entire salary to River's favorite charities, Earth Save and Earth Trust. Now, how cool is that? Another interesting side note, Christian Slater and Samantha Mathis had also dated at one time. They were co-stars in the movie Pump Up the Volume. The death of River Phoenix was definitely the most defining moment of the Viper Room's modern history, and while it might not have been an intentional homicide, it was certainly shady. But that wasn't even the most suspicious thing to go down at that club. In 1999, Johnny Depp's business partner, Anthony Fox, filed a lawsuit against him claiming the star was one of four people who were cooking the books and siphoning millions of dollars from the Viper Room. But right before he was scheduled to testify, he mysteriously went missing on December 19, 2001. A little less than a month later, his pickup truck was found abandoned in Santa Clara, California, five hours north of where he was last seen. His body has never been found. But we can't talk about the death of River Phoenix without talking about another 90s star, Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain. He died only six months after River, at the age of 27, and he was found in the greenhouse above the garage of a Seattle home. It was April 5th, 1994, and he'd been missing for six days. He was supposed to be in rehab in Marina del Rey, California, but he ran away. An electrician who was at the house to install a security system found his body. According to the medical examiner, he'd been dead for at least two days. When he was found, he had a ton of heroin in his bloodstream, a 20-gauge shotgun across his chest, and a note next to his body. At first glance, it looked like a pretty cut-and-dried suicide, but there are a lot of unanswered questions and inconsistencies, so much so that a lot of people think he might have been murdered. And the main suspect has always been his wife, Courtney Love. 
1997, Unsolved Mysteries featured Kurt Cobain's case. The show featured a former L.A. County Sheriff's deputy named Tom Grant, who had looked into his death as a private investigator, and he, for one, doesn't think the singer took his own life. Neither does Nick Broomfield. He's the director of the documentary, Kurt and Courtney. They're just two of the many, many people that have made documentaries and written books and articles saying something fishy was going on. So, was the iconic singer murdered, or did he die by suicide like the cops said? Let's take a look at all the suspicious things around his death. In the final months of his life, he was dealing with a debilitating heroin addiction. He'd never been a stranger to drugs, but it had gotten worse since he'd gotten famous. He was uncomfortable being called the voice of his generation. He was burnt out, tired, and struggling with chronic stomach pains. He was talking about leaving the band. In mid-March, about a month before his body was found, the police responded to a domestic dispute call at the house. Courtney Love said he had a thirty-eight revolver and some pills and he was threatening to kill himself. But Kurt denied it. A week or so later, she and some of the guys from Nirvana and their management company held an intervention. The goal was not just to convince him to get help, but also to keep the band together. It seemed to work, and he agreed to go to rehab in California with Courtney. She went first, and he was supposed to follow a couple of days later. But before he got on the plane, he convinced a friend to buy him a shotgun, the same gun that was found with his body. He told this friend that people were trespassing on his property, and he wanted protection. Then he took off to rehab in L.A., but he only spent two nights there before jumping over the wall and escaping back to Seattle. He was still wearing the plastic intake ID bracelet when they found his body. But before that discovery, when Courtney heard he'd disappeared from rehab, she hired Tom Grant to find him. Quick reminder, Tom Grant is the guy who went on Unsolved Mysteries talking about how Kurt's supposed suicide was actually murder. So I guess hiring him kind of backfired on Courtney. She also filed a missing persons report, but she didn't use her real name. She gave Kurt's mother's name instead. Now, why do you think she would do that? In any case, apparently it didn't occur to anyone to look for Kurt at his house. According to the medical examiner, sometime on April 5th, he took a massive hit of heroin before shooting himself with the shotgun. On the floor next to him, his wallet was open to his driver's license, so there was no question about who it was. Now, meanwhile, on April 7th, Courtney was arrested on drug-related charges in L.A. All right, so let's get into the fishy stuff. Number one. The note that was found with him might not have been a suicide letter. And based on the way it was written, it could have been an apology he was drafting to his fans about leaving Nirvana. Now, here's an excerpt from it. The fact is, I can't fool you, any one of you. It simply isn't fair to you or me. The worst crime I can think of would be to rip people off by faking it and pretending as if I'm having 100% fun. Sometimes I feel as if I should have a punch-in time clock before I walk out on stage. I've tried everything within my power to appreciate it, and I do. God believe me, I do, but it's not enough. I don't have the passion anymore. And so remember, it's better to burn out than to fade away. The suicide part reads almost like an afterthought in the last four sentences, kind of like a P.S. It says, Francis and Courtney, I'll be at your altar. Please keep going, Courtney, for Francis, for her life, which will also be so much happier without me. I love you. I love you. And if you see it, the handwriting on those last sentences looks very different. Then there's the heroin he supposedly shot up with. 
To put it simply, it was a lot. Even for a long-time addict like him, he should have been unconscious with the needle still in his arm. But the syringe and heroin was found neatly put away in the cigar box found next to the body. And then, somehow, even with a potentially deadly amount of drugs in his system, he pulled out this long shotgun, positioned it between his feet, and pulled the trigger with his thumb. There's a lot to unpack here. Starting with the fact that the shotgun was so big, why would a person get that kind of gun to shoot themselves? It was better suited for scaring people away, which, if you remember, was the reason he gave his friend for buying it. And then there's the most suspicious thing of all. There were no legible prints on the gun or on the red pen used to write the note. Obviously, a dead man can't wipe down evidence, so what happened to the fingerprints? And if there's one more thing, something vital to every investigation, a motive, in this case, it could have been money. It's been reported that Kurt was planning to divorce Courtney, and he contacted a lawyer about creating a will that wouldn't include her. But he died before he could do either of those things. At the time of his death, his estate was worth about $450 million. Then there's El Duce, a singer for an obscure punk band. And he told the Kurt and Courtney director that in December 1993, he was offered 50 grand to shoot Kurt. He says he turned it down, but recommended someone else for it. Now, his story sounds ridiculous until you hear that he passed two lie detector tests. And only two days after he gave that interview, he was mysteriously hit by a train and killed. But there were no eyewitnesses to that, and a lot of people think the whole thing just reeks of a cover-up. What about you? What's your take on this? Jimi Hendrix was a genius guitar player. When he died on September 18, 1970, he was widely considered to be the greatest of all time. He was only 27 when he choked on his own vomit after taking too many sleeping pills. Well, that's how he died, but it's not the whole story. There's another version you have to hear, and it involves a former MI6 operative, a figure skater, waterboarding, and of course, lots and lots of money. When he died, his manager was a former British intelligence officer by the name of Mike Jeffrey. And before he got into the music business, Mike had a colorful career with MI6. According to one of his former clients, Eric Burden of The Animals, Mike bragged about torturing KGB agents, blowing up enemy bases, and killing enemies of the state in ways that didn't attract attention. But after learning how much money could be made in rock and roll, he changed careers and learned the business under the notorious music manager, Don Arden. Now, he managed big acts like Jerry Lee Lewis, Black Sabbath, and Air Supply. But he was best known for his violent negotiation tactics. People in the industry called him the Al Capone of pop. But you might know him better as Sharon Osbourne's father. That's the guy that taught Mike Jeffrey everything he knew about the music business. But by all accounts, Mike didn't need anyone to teach him how to play dirty. And when he was introduced to Jimmy in 1966, he took on the guitar player and helped him create the experience. And by 1969, Jimi Hendrix and the experience were touring almost nonstop and pulling in hundreds of thousands of dollars. But like a lot of stars back then, he was being fed so many drugs to keep him going and then to take him down that he didn't know which end was up. He trusted the people around him to take care of him, physically and financially. But his manager was ripping him off. Most of the money he was making was secretly being funneled into offshore accounts. 
When he started to suspect that Mike was stealing from him, he was coincidentally kidnapped at gunpoint by some mafia thugs while buying drugs in a New York City nightclub. He was held hostage for several days before he was rescued, and since his manager had bragged about mob connections, he assumed Mike had orchestrated the whole thing. When you think your manager is trying to kill you, that's when you get out. And that's what Jimmy was trying to do. Secretly, he was planning his escape, and first on the list was replacing his psycho manager. That's when he started talking to Miles Davis's manager, Alan Douglas, about taking over. In the summer of 1970, he left New York for London, saying, Lately, I've been thinking that I'm circled by wolves. And he wasn't wrong. One day after Alan Douglas told Mike Jeffrey that he was out and Alan was in, Jimmy was found dead in his girlfriend's bed, covered in vomit. When paramedics got to her room in the Samarkand Hotel, they found the door open and no one else was around. According to the rap, within hours of his death, all his hotel rooms and crash pads in London, as well as New York, were turned over. Clothes, instruments, writings, drugs, everything vanished. An investigation was not launched until 23 years later when all evidence was long gone. The doctor on duty testified that Jimi Hendrix had been dead for some time. Red wine was coming out of his nose and out of his mouth. It was horrific. Someone apparently poured red wine down his throat to intentionally cause him to choke. And then, years later in 2009, he told the Times... Not only was it saturated right through his hair and shirt, but his lungs and stomach were absolutely full of wine. We kept sucking it out, and it kept surging and surging. He had really drowned in a massive amount of red wine. So to put it simply, he was allegedly waterboarded to death with red wine. His toxicology report showed barbiturates, but very little alcohol in his bloodstream. Basically, it was the equivalent of four beers. So given that, should we assume that someone intentionally poured wine down his throat to kill him? You know how some people are just born to do things? By all accounts, Jimi Hendrix was born to be king of the guitar. Well, technically, I should say Johnny Allen Hendrix was born to be king. He started going by Jimmy as he got older. As he was growing up in Seattle, he carried a broomstick around and pretended it was a guitar. His first instrument was a broken ukulele with only one string that he rescued from the garage. But even with just the one string, he taught himself to play Elvis Presley's Hound Dog by ear. He bought his first real guitar in 1958 when he was 16, and the next year his dad gave him an electric guitar. His first real gig was backing up Little Richard, but he was fired in 1965 for drawing too much attention away from the star, which was a good thing because by the following year, his own star was taking off. Unfortunately, his rise to fame was a rock and roll cliche. Lots of women, paternity suits, drugs, and booze. At the time he died, he was hanging out with an old flame, German figure skater Monica Damon and she later claimed they were deeply in love and they were planning to be married. But in actuality, close friends of his say she was more like an obsessive fan. Think Kathy Bates in Misery, but with more sex and drugs. On September 17th, his last day on Earth, the two of them were shopping and partying in London. But when she spotted Jimmy supposedly flirting with a couple of other girls, she started yelling at him and she was asked to leave the party. Now, this was around 3 a.m. on September 18th, 1970. 
But whatever went down happened sometime between 3 a.m. when she was fighting with him and 11.30 a.m. when his body was found dead in her apartment. Now, over the years, she's given a few different versions about what was going on during those lost hours. And she says they stayed up arguing until after 7 in the morning. And he'd taken an amphetamine pill at the party and couldn't sleep. So she offered him a German sleeping pill called Vesperex. Now, they're not on the market anymore because they were insanely strong. The recommended dosage was half a pill. But she claims Jimmy took nine of them while she was asleep. In some accounts of that morning, she says she woke up around 9 a.m., saw that he was asleep, and left the room to go out for cigarettes. In other accounts, she says she woke up closer to 10.30 or 11 a.m. and says she saw the vomit and couldn't wake him up. She called friends who told her to turn him over so he wouldn't choke, but she didn't do that. In fact, according to The Independent, it took some convincing to get her to call an ambulance. But she finally did, although she wasn't in the room when they got there, and at some point the room was cleaned of his guitars, drugs, and anything else of value. So assuming he was murdered, who did it? Not surprisingly, there are a lot of options for the suspect list. Number one has to be the crooked manager, Mike Jeffrey. Since Jimmy was jumping ship to another manager, he was about to lose his golden goose. And if and when his new manager took a close look at his new client's financial records, it would be obvious that Mike had been embezzling from Jimmy for years. That could have sent him to prison and ruined his career. In 2009, a former Hendrix roadie wrote a book aptly titled Rock Roadie, and in it, he claimed that Mike actually confessed to the murder in 1971, saying, that son of a bitch was going to leave me. If I lost him, I'd lose everything. Instead, he got all the profits from the record sales after he died and collected on the $2 million life insurance policy he'd taken out on him. Now, don't you agree that Jimmy's accidental death was just a little too convenient? And in a case like that, it makes sense to look at the person who benefits, Mike Jeffrey. But karma caught up to him pretty quickly. Or did it? In 1973, he supposedly died in a plane crash, but his remains were never found. So, did he fake his own death? Checked into his flight but never boarded? He was due in court the very next day to answer for other embezzlement, money laundering, and fraud charges. So, that plane crash was pretty well-timed. As a former intelligence officer, he had hands-on familiarity with explosives, and what a better way to fake his death. But he's not the only suspect on our list. There's also the woman he was with in his last hours, Monica Danman and she made a career out of exaggerating the depth of her relationship with Hendrix in tabloid interviews. And she even wrote a book about it called The Inner World of Jimi Hendrix. But other women in Jimi's life, and there were a lot, thought she might just be a nutty fan fling who might have been capable of dosing him with the sleeping pills just to get him to stay with her. In 1996, she was found dead in her car from carbon monoxide poisoning in what looked like a suicide. And last but not least on the list of suspects is the American government. Apparently, according to The Independent, the FBI's counterintelligence team and the CIA were keeping files on him, and his name was listed among America's most subversive figures. His brother said Jimmy had started to get chummy with a group the government considered dangerously radical, the Black Panthers. And with the influence he had over white audiences, he was a person to watch. But, you know, remember, this was a different time. But 
It is still very suspicious, don't you think? When he died, he was in the middle of writing a new song called The Story of Life. The lyrics were found in the room with him, and at first, police thought it was a suicide note or a poem. And considering what happened, some of the words sound eerily prophetic. The story of life is quicker than the wink of an eye. The story of love is hello and goodbye. Until we meet again. He was buried in Seattle. When he died, he had just $20,000 to his name, thanks to his manager's shady business dealings. But by 2019, his estate grew to more than $100 million. Now, he died without a will, and his estate went to his father. And when he died in 2002, he left all of it to his adopted stepdaughter, Janie. And she was just nine when Jimmy died, but his brother Leon was cut out of the will altogether. Now, that triggered years of lawsuits over merchandising and money, or to put it another way, Leon wanted to sell stuff with his brother's likeness on it, and Janie wanted to put a stop to it. Long story short, she won, and today she remains the CEO of Experience Hendrix, which handles his music, likeness, name, and image. And she's also the executive director of the Jimi Hendrix Park Foundation, which is a small park in Seattle in honor of Jimi's legacy. And that's your recap. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to us if you would subscribe and give this show a five-star review. It only takes a minute, but it means the world to us. Thanks for spending your time with me today. Amy and I are here with new recaps every week. So until next time, take care.